Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. Last weekend, we lost one of America and the world's most brilliant thinkers and activists when it comes to the future of cities and the future of our society. Ben Barber was a professor at NYU. He passed away at the age of 77, had been a guest on the show many times over the years, and a man I have known for a good portion of my life. Some of his latest books were If Mayors Ruled the World. He has a forthcoming book, which we'll be talking about, called Urban Sovereignty and the Fix for Global Warming. And he was a man who was always ahead of his time, way ahead of his time. In 1995, I interviewed him for a book called Jihad versus Mick World, How Globalism and Tribalism Are Reshaping the World. This is a book that was prescient about what happened on 9-11 and became the book everybody read after 9-11 to figure out what just happened to America and the West. Before he passed away, he created the Global Parliament of Mayors, which brought mayors across the world together to fight the right-wing shift in this world in the populist movements around the world. And he stood up for that and was a man way ahead of his time. I lost a great friend. We lost a great leader and thinker. More will be coming about Ben Barber and the work that Tavis Molly and I will be doing together to celebrate his work and bring it to this 21st century, to the young minds of the 21st century. And now we bring you the last conversation we had with Dr. Benjamin Barber on this program. It came out of an article he wrote called, Can Cities Counter the Power of President-Elect Donald Trump? And it was a vision of cities in America and across the world and what they can do to be the bulwark for the future coming out of the cosmopolitan world. We bring you some of the final words of the late, great Dr. Benjamin Barber. Rest in peace, my friend. So, Ben, it's, oh, it is good to have you back. And I, 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 um, <clears throat> I was fascinated by your article and was reading some of your older pieces as well and some um, uh, that, that you had been writing about cities. And, but let's take a step backwards, first of all. I, I want you to first just briefly describe uh, the Global Parliament of Mayors that you helped create, and then I want to launch into this thesis of where the cities might hold the power for the future. Well, thanks, Mark. Let me actually go back for one second, 400 years. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case some of your uh, some of your listeners want a little more sleep this morning. <laughs> but, but you know, for about 400 years, the primary governmental institutions in the world have been nation states. You know, in the 16th and 17th century, France and England, and later the United States and Japan, grew up as nation states, and our national governments have done most of the business you know, whether it's the economy, whether it's war and peace, whether it's education and health, uh, most of what's happened to countries around the world has happened within the jurisdiction of nation states. And quite aside from all of this to do with populist governments and Brexit and Trump and so on, in recent decades, nation states have ceased to really be able to do the things they once did because of a simple fact, inter- Dependence. We live in a world where every challenge from climate change and immigration to security and terrorism and pandemic disease is a global cross-border problem. And states are still trying to deal with it from the uh, perspective of independent, sovereign, bordered bodies one by one. And they just can't do it anymore. So even under the best of circumstances, never mind the Trump government, but an Obama government, a Hillary Clinton government, uh, a Bush government, states have not been in a position to deal very effectively with these global problems. So part of the question I've been asking for a number of years, way before Trump won this election, is are there bodies governmental bodies capable of dealing with the global cross-border problems of an interdependent world we face. And that's what brought me full circle now to cities, because cities, which are the oldest political communities, the oldest political institutions, at the same time in recent decades, 
have shown themselves capable of networking with one another and confronting the most pressing problems we have, whether it's of immigration or climate change or pandemic disease or even security issues where cities are dealing with one another, not just with national intelligence agencies. So bottom line is, you know, before we even come to Trump and what that means, cities have increasingly demonstrated their extraordinary capacity for global cooperation and for dealing with issues that go beyond the borders because they don't have borders. You know, they, they don't they're not sovereign bodies. They don't claim to represent just the people of one nation. Cities have a great deal in common and they are in a position to do that. That's the starting place for the argument is that cities are in a position today to become primary governing institutions, particularly when they work together to solve a lot of the world's problems that states and the U.N. can't solve. So let, let me, you know, I just, there was an announcement that just came over the transom here uh, that uh, uh, Trump just ch- chose uh, Rick Perry to be his secretary of energy, former governor of Texas. Yeah. That just, that just, came, that just happened. Um, and I throw that out both as a news announcement, but also to say that so how do you see that balance taking place when you have this massive kind of right wing shift uh, in many countries in the world, including our own, uh, not and and the powers of Brexit that took place that have sent most urban areas in Britain voted voted uh, uh, against the idea of leaving the European Union as did most communities of color, which are mostly urban uh, in Britain. But you, you look at the, the, the power of central governments are very real that can set the agendas of the fact that, well, let me just stop there. So, I mean, so how does, how, how does, well, 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 you're right to say the residual power of governments in terms of sovereignty, in terms of armies and navies, in terms of uh, state departments and so forth is very real, but their capacity actually to solve problems is very, very limited. And let's take climate change, which is perhaps the world's most urgent problem. You might not know it from Donald Trump, but uh, it is the world's most critical and urgent problems. Even at its best, uh, the climate agreement reached in Paris at COP21 last year, almost every climate scientist agreed was insufficient to what needed to be done. Now, the reality is 80% of carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions are in cities, and there's a great deal cities can do when they work together in organizations like the C40, or my new global parliament of mayors, to deal with emissions, whether or not nation states, you know, we might have Tillerson, uh, the ExxonMobil CEO in the State Department, and we might have climate deniers uh, in the White House, but the fact is cities can take serious and important steps to curb greenhouse emissions, whether or not national governments are doing that. One other quick example, just because most people don't know this one, in national security, increasingly cities are working city to city. After 9-11, the mayor of New York, uh, when he became Mayor Bloomberg and his, his police commissioner, Ray Kelly, decided to stop sending the intelligence squad of about a dozen New York City intel detectives to Washington to work with the CIA and FBI and Interpol and started dispatching them to other cities around the world, to Hong Kong and uh, to Frankfurt and to Rio and to London, because they found that city-to-city cooperation on intelligence actually was getting more important information that cities could use to thwart terrorism than going to the national agency. So in general, in other words, cities have half the world's population, 80% of the GDP, and a great deal of the creative talent in the world, and are in a position through cooperation with one another, particularly if they have the right 
network to begin to deal with issues, whether or not states are run by populists and reactionaries, whether or not states are even trying uh, to deal with such problems. So, you know, when when you write about um, the, the, the fact that that, that uh, what's happening in the cities from marriage rights, minimum wage, climate action, creative culture, refuge, refuge for immigrants that you write about, um, and, and looking at nations as a whole, as you write, saying, are grown, uh, you quote, parochial and xenophobic, um, so you look at the, the, the kind of global virtue of, of urbanity, as you write about, but then you juxtapose that against someone like Marie Le Pen's chief strategist, Florian Philpot, who, who, uh, who kept joking on Twitter. One of the things he wrote was, their world is crumbling, ours is just being built. So, I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about. How, does that, how do you think that plays out in the coming decade? In the coming well, four- what the populists are saying, see, what the populists, the reactionary populists like Le Pen, uh, and like some of the people who voted to uh, you know, England and the UK, out uh, the people who are running for office in France and uh, in Germany and in Austria and so on for elections, the five-star movement that got rid of Maria uh, Matteo Renzi uh, last week in Italy, what they are saying, kind of rightly, is that the traditional nation-state liberals aren't getting much done. But they're blaming that on the liberals, not on the nation state. And they're saying, we'll take it over and we're going to get stuff done. We're going to we're going to put up higher walls. We're going to stop immigrants from coming in. Uh, We're going to recreate the old sovereignty. Trump kept saying they're stealing our sovereignty. Well, he's right about the loss of sovereignty, but nobody's stealing it. What's stealing it is an interdependent world in which nation states simply can't deal with their problems because walls don't matter. Borders don't work. And that's the real issue. So populists have part, uh, part of the solution, but it's, if you like, the, uh, it's the wrong part of the solution. They know uh, that sovereignty is leaking away. What they don't seem to understand is that that's a feature of modern history and an interdependent world. And what we need is global interdependent democratic institutions to deal with global interdependent problems, not a renewed attempt to reestablish 19th century sovereign borders. It simply won't work. I mean, the fact is Trump's jobs are not coming back because they've been taken away not by Mexicans and Indonesians, but by robotization, automation, and the information economy. You know, those are the real issues, and we have to face up to those issues. Cities are facing up to them. States aren't. So let's take something else that you posit here. I mean, you, you, it was really interesting. You said that that what we see happening in this election in America is not about is not about the East and the West Coast taking on Middle America, or the Middle of America, but is it about urban versus I guess versus is where you use it, versus uh, rural, suburban, and exurban. Um, so how does that play out politically for you, though? Given the, the divide in this country, what what does that say about our future? And given that given that you look at that right now at the, at the states where the, where the right wing kind of controls 69 out of 99 legislative bodies across the country, 25 states, they have all of it, two-thirds of the governor's mansions deciding about right. voting rights. I mean, so where do you think that takes us, though? Well, I don't want to make it too complicated, but there are two factors. It's okay. Here. <laughs> the reality is, the reality is, the simple reality is that more than half of America has voted in a popular majority for Democrats, for progressives, for a very long time. The reality is more than half of America, if you add up the vote, have voted for a Democratic Congress. But we have this skewed 19th century system of an electoral college, of a Senate based not on population, but two votes per state, which favors rural regions. 
we have a system gerrymandered to favor the minority, and the majority has basically been unable to vote its numbers in any elections across the country. So the reality is, and this is why we just saw Hillary racking up 2.8 million more votes than Trump, despite his denials, even as he won a substantial electoral victory, because the Electoral College, this 18th century organization, uh, skews its votes because the gerrymandered uh, organization of congressional districts gerrymanders the votes and favors Republicans. The reality is there is an urban majority in the United States, and by the way, in the world as well, that is consistently outvoted here as a result of skewed historical special circumstances, as a result of the impact of farmers and subsidies and the oil industry and mining and so on on government. And what I'm really calling for and calling for a greater role for cities is the restoration of majority rule. Because the reality is America today does not have majority rule. Trump does not represent a majority. The Congress, which is Republican, doesn't represent the majority of voters in congressional elections. So part of empowering cities and making sure their voices are clearly heard is to give back a voice to the majority. I'm not trying to say you know, uh, that people in cities are a minority but need to be more loudly heard. They're a majority that has been consistently overruled year in and year out by our skewed system, and it's time now that their real capacity to solve problems, because it's not just majoritarianism. It's the fact that they look like the world. They solve the world's problems. You know, cities are, are multicultural and diverse in their population. Nation states are well, you know, in America, it's the white majority make America white again. In England, it was little England against the flood of immigrants, not just from the Middle East, but from Poland and Eastern Europe. It's people trying to vote for the old monocultural identities of national governments against the multicultural, diverse populations of cities that look like the world, that are like the world, and are fit to operate effectively in the world. So, you know, I, I, and, and the scheme of how the politics works, at least in the world we're in now, there's always this kind of fluidity between the Hamiltonian pr- principles and Jeffersonian principles. And they kind of flip depending – they kind of flip for progressives, um, I guess, in, in, the, in, the, in the 40s and 50s when the civil rights movement began that demanded a federal presence. Um, but that's being pushed back upon now to, for voting rights and ending segregation and more. And so since then, I mean, if you take a place like Baltimore or many other cities – they had a program here in the early 70s of these dollar houses. That was made possible because, in part, of bonds the city floated, but also because of federal money that came in to allow the kind of redevelopment to take place. So how, does, how, do, you, how do you see the, the, the monetary aspects of this working? Well, that's a really good question, Mark, and it goes to the heart of the issue. Because I mentioned earlier that cities around the world generate over 80% of gross uh, domestic product. That's where the wealth is generated. It's where most of the creativity is, the imagination is. Uh, Richard Florida has a book called Creative Cities about right. cities as a source of creativity and innovation and capitalism and entrepreneurship as well. And the reality is that uh, cities can do that kind of work in a very important way, but they are hobbled again by this strange circumstances. Cities provide not just 80% of the wealth, but a great preponderance of tax revenue to states and the federal government. And in Europe, cities provide, for example, most of the revenue for the European Union to operate. 
But when it comes to cities saying now we have issues, we're dealing with problems, we're going to deal with climate change, we're going to deal with immigration, they act like beggars. They have to go hat in hand to state and federal governments. In Europe, they have to go to the European Council and say, please, sir, more porridge. Can we please have a little bit of the revenues we've given back again? And my suggestion there is that cities have to flex their muscles and say, excuse me, we're providing the revenue. We demand sufficient revenue to do all the jobs that we are increasingly being asked to do and are doing very well. So that that, that is a fundamental problem. Cities create the wealth and pay the tax revenues, yet are beggars in getting enough of it back to do the job. One of the key terms we hear today is unfunded mandate. Sometimes the federal government will say, sure, Baltimore, go on and do it. There was just uh, the governor Kasich in Ohio just said to cities, fix all your old sewers, fix all your old right. Uh, water pipes. And the cities say, great, we'll do it. Are you going to give us money for that? Nope. You find the money. And the fact is, Ohio cities pay the state a lot of the taxes, but the state doesn't give it back when it gives an order to fix the pipes. That's an unfunded mandate. Immigration is an unfunded mandate. Climate change is an unfunded mandate where cities are being asked to fix things without the resources they need, even though they actually created the resources and revenues that should be available to them. I'm a radical on this. I say maybe the time has come for cities to say we are going to start keeping part of the taxes we pay to fix things and give you the rest rather than give them to you and try to beg them back again. That would lead to court cases and litigation, obviously. But the time has come for cities to begin to flex their majoritarian muscle, their... uh, fiscal muscle, their creative muscle, and their capacity as economic drivers of the country to have adequate resources to do the things they need to do. I mean, I think, and here lies some of the contradictions, and I think they're really important to explore. I mean, I think they, I really enjoyed what you're writing about this, and the first book you wrote that we talked about, I really enjoyed a lot. The realities are also that is, is is that cities are you talked about infrastructure and infrastructure is critical to the development of any of any nation but of course any city and they're all crumbling across the planet because they're so old that takes a lot of money to fix as we some people estimate three trillion dollars just for the infrastructure in the United States alone uh, over the next ten years if if that money can be found that's a and b that you have the this, the internal contradictions as well of cities are also the place where masses of poor people live and congregate for many reasons uh, and and then the cities battle within themselves over how you develop a city do, and leaving poor people out of the equation so I mean there's a lot of contradictions inside of this and I wonder how you wrestle with that well you're right Mark there are it's not just that a lot of poor people are in cities and by the way they're there because they have a much better chance to get the kinds of uh, uh, the kinds of support they need from welfare agencies and housing and so on than they do in the suburbs or further out, same reason immigrants come to cities, they have a much better chance of you know, getting jobs and being taken care of. They're there for a reason. But as you say, cities don't always have then the resources, because they've paid so much out, uh, to be able to do the things they need to do to deal with it. And that's, that's why I mean, the very fact that they are dealing with the greater preponderance of immigrants, that they are dealing with poverty and uh, with people in need, with people without education. That's why, that's why city education is, is so important. That's where so much of uh, that takes place. That's why jobs and, and training is so important. That's why community colleges and cities that provide 
of professional training uh, for uh, young people seeking jobs are absolutely so critical. People go to the cities because they love them, because they're creative, because they're imaginative and entrepreneurial, but also because they do provide social services and they do provide the framework within which you can hope to get an education and eventually to get a job to take care of your family. So we, we have expectations of cities and the people who go to them have those expectations without providing the resources, the jurisdictional power that allows cities fully to achieve uh, the promise that they hold out to people. But uh, the other side, the other side I, I just want to say this, I know we're going to run out of time, but I, I, everybody out there who wants to get a feel for what cities can do should go online and look at Mayor de Blasio's Cooper Union speech. The mayor of New York, de Blasio, on, on November 21st, just two weeks after the election, gave an extraordinary speech. And, you know, it, it's, it's how cities can take on Trump coming full circle, you know, back to what cities can do about Trump. Here's what he said. He said, if we see anything undermining our values, we will take a stand. If Muslims are required to register, we will take legal action to block it, said de Blasio. If the federal government wants our police officers to tear immigrant families apart, we will refuse to do it. If the Justice Department orders local police to resume stop and frisk, we will not comply. If federal funds are cut off the land, we will ensure women receive the health care. An attack, we will find their attackers, we will arrest them, we will prosecute them. This is a kind of declaration of independence by New York's mayor, and it's been echoed by Garcetti in, in, in LA and Reed in Atlanta and sanctuary cities around the country saying, We don't care what they do in Washington, they are not coming here to tear immigrant communities apart, they're not coming here to register Muslims, they're not coming here to take away the rights of women and LGBT. Uh, rights and so forth. And that is, this is in some ways, they've gone beyond what I've said. I've said they have a right to this. Mayors are now saying, this is what we will do. And this is, it's an important message because I know there's so much despair and depression and we were all kind of feeling, oh my God, how are we going to survive this guy? But in fact, the majority instruments of power in the United States, multicultural, open, free, sanctuary communities are in effect saying, we will take on Trump and we can do it. The mayor of New York even goes so far as to say police forces in America are local. They're under the supervision of cities. So we actually have, if you like, our own armies. And our armies are not going to permit the feds to come in and start abusing the rights of city dwellers. And in a place like Baltimore, which has a tougher history of New York because it has more poverty, it doesn't have the same resources, the right of the city dwellers there to assure that their communities are protected, that the poor uh, have benefits, that immigrants are given dignity, that is something that they don't have to wait around for Trump to recognize. They can insist on it and say, these are our rights. That's why in my new book I talk about urban sovereignty, city rights. In a certain way, the sovereignty of nations is passing to cities, and it is now their responsibility to assure the life, liberty, property, and sustainability of their citizens, and mayors are doing it. So I, I, I'm curious if you can just for a moment just, just kind of go through where you think, I, I posited a little bit earlier, where you think the next four to ten years takes us. I mean, when you have your global, uh, your global parliament of mayors and the other organizations that exist uh, around the country that link urban areas, I mean, where, where, where do you really see this going? 
Well, that, that's that, that's a good question, Mark. And, and what I think the key thing to start with is that cities can't do it alone. Right. That's a brave speech by Mayor de Blasio, but he alone can't do this. It will be all sanctuary cities acting together to prevent the federal government from trying to abolish their status as sanctuaries uh, for immigrants. It will take cities everywhere defending dreamers and uh, the young immigrants who came in early, illegally to be sure, but no, by no fault of their own and are now good aspiring citizens. Cities have to work together. And the founding in September of a global parliament of mayors in The Hague that now has over 100 cities and with hundreds more applying is an effort to say cities in the United States and around the world have to act together. The first thing the feds will do, if they do it legally, will be to bring court cases against cities that are resisting federal power. If one city is taken to court, it will lose. But imagine now if 600 or 6,000 American cities join in the case defending their right to protect immigrants, their right as sanctuary cities. That's going to be a much, much tougher uh, tougher prosecution. It's going to be a much tougher case. Cities have to act together, and they need institutions to do it. They've got the U.S. Conference of Mayors here, but we need global institutions so that New York can work with Paris and Baltimore can work with Lyon and Bristol can work with New Orleans, not just the great big cities working together. And the Global Parliament of Mayors, and people can get it online, globalparliamentofmayors.com, and look at it, uh, is this new organization that is becoming a global megaphone, a global voice for cities, a global platform to exercise common collective power in developing common policies on climate change and on immigration. Cities that are strong on immigration can't succeed if they're the only ones doing it, because all the immigrants will come to those one places and overwhelm the system. Cities have to offer services and dignity together. So working together, having cities work together in a kind of UN of cities is absolutely indispensable to cities flexing their muscles, exercising their power, and taking on the abuses of the Trump administration. If that happens, I think what you'll see is that given the limits on national sovereignty that are already there and the power of cities, Trump will do far less damage uh, than many of us fear he might otherwise do. And Americans and others will begin to understand that by participating in and being strong citizens of their cities and their metro regions, they can exercise a constructive and positive impact on the future and not just say, well, we're going to lose four or eight years here and we'll have to start over again with the next election. We can start this morning uh, with a constructive democratic political effort to counter whatever it is Trump and whatever it is the Theresa May in England and a new French regime and Italian regime in Europe are trying to do uh, to set us back into the 19th century. Cities live in the 21st century and can make sure that we all live there in the coming years. Ben, I appreciate this very much. Tell me, when is Cool Cities coming out? Cool Cities will be out in February. It's Cool Cities and the, the, uh, it's, the subtitle is Urban Sovereignty which is, you know, talking about that very thing we just talked about. It'll be out in February, March. Yale University Press is publishing it as a trade book, so it should be available in, in, in bookstores. And thank you, Mark. You're, you always, you know, have such a deep understanding of what the issues are and what the real questions are. It's a pleasure to talk with you about these complex but crucial issues. Always good to talk to you too, Ben Barber. Thanks so much for taking your time with us today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
That was Dr. Benjamin Barber, distinguished senior fellow of Fordham Law School Urban Consortium, founder of the Global Parliament of Mayors. His new book coming out is Cool Cities, uh, and we'll be right back. 